This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, the new movie from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters, September 24th. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. This hour, Janet Mefford Today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music, from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine. The Jesus Music features interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters, beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. So are you looking forward to potentially having your little girl get drafted? Doesn't that sound like a terrific idea? Well, we have a woke military So why not? Everything is about equality and diversity and who cares about military readiness or military lethality or any kind of considerations that have driven most armies and military forces throughout the world didn't generally have women fighting in combat for sure. And in other capacities, it's a different story. But I'm sorry, you you can call people troglodytes for having a problem with this. But I think at root, what happens is if you have a little girl, if you're a clear thinking person, you're going to be against this idea. And it really irritates me. In the next few days, the House is supposed to vote on this National Defense Uh, Authorization Act, which contains this amendment requiring women to register for the draft. They have taken out the sex-specific language in the NDDA, the House Republican Conference. Way to go, guys, because you're just so cool. I am so over this. I'm so sick of it. It's so wrong on every level, on every level. Now, you have Lieutenant, I'm sorry, you have General Jerry Boykin and Mary Beth Waddell writing in the Washington Examiner about this and citing the Biden administration's disastrous retreat from Afghanistan as raising fresh concerns about the military leadership. Absolutely true. Did you know the Army's top enlisted general was tweeting about diversity and quotas in celebration of Women's Equality Day, just as we had this situation with 13 U.S. service members killed in a bomb attack in Kabul. Yeah, we need to be woke. Who cares about Americans stranded in Afghanistan because they completely botched the operation of withdrawing our troops? Who cares whether or not there are Christians there who are going to die? Who cares if the Taliban is going house to house and slaughtering people? I saw a video yesterday of a man being flogged screaming in agony. Why should we care? It's not our country. We were there for 20 years. Time to get out. See ya. You're on your own. Oh, you Americans, you're also on your own. We don't really care. And by the way, uh, Joe Biden's feet will not be held to the fire on that because he's got a DNC run media. I mean, not the DNC is literally running it. Although go back to Donna Brazil. Remember the questions fed to CNN ahead of time in the presidential debate? So there's a lot of cross-pollination there between the DNC and the mainstream media. So here we have coming up this vote on the National Defense Authorization Act. And one example of this 
woke military is requiring women to register for the draft. Now, going back, as the Washington Examiner points out, the Senate Armed Services Committee in July approved this amendment that removed any reference to the word male from current law. And then the House Armed Services Committee agreed to a similar amendment earlier this month involving some Republicans as well. There you have it. The NDD, I'm sorry, the NDAA is an annual bill authorizing military funding, setting guidelines and priorities for defense policy. So it's a must pass bill. Proponents of requiring women to register for the draft are calculating that their proposal stands a better shot of becoming law if it is tied to essential legislation. It's like the oldest trick in the book. Now, here are some of the reasons that Boykin and Waddle mention as being problematic concerning letting girls be registered for the draft. It's considerably more dangerous for women in combat. There are those who like to ignore the reality of the biological differences between men and women, but studies show that fewer women than men can meet the physical demands of the military positions a draft is generally used to fill, which has historically been combat arms, with infantry receiving the bulk of the draftees. Women have much higher attrition and injury rates and can have non-deployable rates as high as three times that of their male peers when placed in these roles. While some women can successfully meet these demands, the randomness and unique nature of the draft make it nearly impossible to ensure that female draftees adequately fall into that category. Then drafting women would be detrimental to unit cohesion and the lethality and readiness of the military. We've gone through a lot of that in the past, but the Marine Corps established this ground combat element integrated task force. And they found that in tasks resembling requirements of infantry, armor, and artillery units, all male teams outperform co-ed units in 69% of ground combat tasks. And the biological differences in men and women negatively affected co-ed unit speed and effectiveness in simulated battle tasks. So there are all kinds of good reasons why you should not be doing this. But the woke don't care. Now let's go back. Because speaking of the Family Research Council, Tony Perkins had done an interview with Representative Vicki Hartzler of Missouri a couple of months ago, actually back in July. And she had some good comments on this issue as to why drafting women is not even necessary. And she answers this question, well, how do we stop it? This is Cut 5. First of all, looking and seeing, is there a need? I mean, the purpose of the Armed Services Committee is to make sure that our nation has what it needs to be safe and secure and that our military is the strongest in the world. So I think first we have to look big picture and say, is there really a need to do this? And I say no. Uh, We have an all-volunteer force right now that is uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, It is made up of men and women, volunteers who step up and they say, we want to serve our country. And we have uh, women currently serving, about 16.5% of our our military is women, and they are doing uh, amazing, courageous work uh, in our military in all areas and all branches. But I think that just is a testimony that we have a system that works right now, all volunteer. Mm -hmm. And I encourage anybody that wants to serve, they can sign up. Uh, But even if you were to have a conflict, uh, you got about two and a half million individuals serving now in the military and say you needed to double that. Say we needed five million people. Uh, There's uh, we would only need a little over one percent of the men who had signed up in the draft to actually get into the service to bring us up to those numbers. So I think this is a a solution in in search of a problem. There really isn't a problem here. Um, And I feel confident if we do get into a conflict that Americans, both men and women, will step up and want to serve. That's what we always have done. So I don't think that this is needed. 
Here's another great rant from Texas Representative Chip Roy. Listen to this. Cut six. In my view, when we have a country that has a volunteer army, volunteer military, I should say, and we largely don't have to draft, then we say there might come a day when you need to draft. World War II was one of those days. And then you say we need our women to register for the selective service, that is to make themselves available for the draft. Then that means you're saying to me, my 10-year-old daughter, in eight years when she's 18, she has to go sign up to maybe be left in a foxhole in Afghanistan when an incompetent president like this one abandons our men and women, leaves Afghanistan, leaves them behind, leaves $85 billion in the hands of the Taliban. And I want that incompetent regime to make a decision about whether my daughter and to trust them that she won't get me put into combat. And then they say, oh, but Israel has this great thing. women. Well, first of all, we're not Israel. Second of all, we have very different circumstances in Israel. Third of all, I don't care. We're Americans. We can decide what we think is good for us. And if we want to have some sort of mandatory public service, maybe respecting federalism, say in Texas, fine, we can have that conversation. But I don't really think so as an American. We have lots of people. We are a generous country. We volunteer. We help people. We give lots of money to charity. And yes, millions sign up for military service in a volunteer army. Under no circumstances am I ever going to do anything to support anything that would involve mandating that we draft our women, our daughters. And I'm going to fight it. And I'm going to try to highlight every Republican who votes for it, Democrat too, and point out the utter foolishness of forcing our daughters to have to be uh, subjected to a potential draft. Whenever you hear anybody say, well, don't worry, they'll never draft, or, well, we should just treat them and men and women the same on that. No, I subscribe to the theory that an able-bodied man can make himself available to go defend his country if he's called upon to do so. Beautifully said, Representative Roy. He actually put out a tweet yesterday. Every House GOP member who votes for the NDAA this week is voting to draft your daughter, and he has a hashtag, don't draft our daughters. You know, the purpose of the military is very important, especially at a moment like this in history. And I certainly don't want my daughters in a foxhole in Afghanistan with Biden in charge or any other president. They shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be drafted, period. We don't need it. And it's not good for America. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be back. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. 
Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Well, the abortion industry recently filed a brief in the Supreme Court's upcoming Dobbs late abortion case out of Mississippi, and oral arguments are set for December 1st. But as the Charlotte Lozier Institute now points out, the brief was based on outdated science, flawed analysis, and a disregard for facts. Imagine that. We're going to find out more now from Chuck Donovan, president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. So good to talk to you again, Chuck. How are you? I'm great, Janet. Good to talk to you. Now, when we're talking about this case, it's never lost on me that some listeners tuning in may not understand how significant this case is. How would you rate this case in terms of its importance for the pro-life cause? Well, I think it's the most important case the court has considered since 1973. Uh, The only one that would be remotely close would be the Casey ruling, where uh, pro-life people were disappointed that the court uh, basically tried to reaffirm Roe versus Wade. Uh, right now, they have squarely in front of them in the Mississippi case the question whether states can limit abortion before viability. And we, of course, think the answer is yes, but it also makes it a very science-oriented question. What happens at viability? Why should it matter? Uh, there's so many other things going on earlier in pregnancy, and Mississippi has taken note of them. Well, right. Now, so we have the abortion industry filing this response brief on the issue of whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortion are unconstitutional. They argued that based on a 2010 study, the idea that conscious awareness, even including the experience of pain, is possible before viability is even less supportable today than it was at the time of Casey. You guys have pointed out, though, that the author of that very study has repudiated that position that they're putting forward as proof for their argument. What is going on here with this particular point they're making? Well, there's both a medical mistake, and I think I would call it a research ethics mistake. If you're working in an area of science or statistics, uh, you need to take account of anything, any research that has been done that's contrary to your point of view, and you look for anything that happened later that undercuts your point of view. In this case, we specifically have Stuart Derbyshire uh, one of the authors of the original ACOG, the uh, liberal uh, pro-abortion organization, their stance on fetal pain uh, in 1994 was that it wasn't possible until certain physiological structures were in place. And that was more or less 24 weeks, so it nicely dovetailed with uh, the Roe and Casey decision. But a Derbyshire has now changed his mind, and he wrote with a co-author in the British medical journal Medical Ethics, uh, that you have to give moral consideration to the evidence that pain can occur as early 
as 10, 14, or 15 weeks of pregnancy. So <laughs> even their own author has uh, repudiated what he wrote before, raised big questions, and yet he's not mentioned in the new brief. It's as if he doesn't exist. That's 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 unfair play, if you will. Oh, it is unfair play. Has he been pretty outspoken on that issue? In other words, are there written accounts of him changing his mind that would have been things that they could have found this and included it? Or was it something they would say, well, we didn't hear about it? Well, I hope that they would have to have heard about it when we filed our brief and lawyers were responding to our brief in Mississippi as well as others. Uh, we brought this up and we even challenged ACOG publicly to recognize that one of the original authors of their study has since come to a different point of view. Uh, I do wish uh, Dr. Debrisher would lay out the reasons for his change of position, but mind you, uh, Janet, he's changing on the science. He's still pro-choice, but he thinks certain things are morally significant. I think that's true of a lot of Americans who would like to see Roe v. Wade uh, revisited and uh, reversed. Yeah. Now you had made reference to the scientific evidence and I don't want to get too far into the weeds, mainly because I'm not a sure. medical doctor, but I think this is interesting sure. because there was this idea, people might ask, why did Dr. Dr. Derbyshire change, uh, change his mind here? The idea that the cerebral cortex is required to perceive pain was the original idea that a baby is not developed enough at 15 weeks, say, for example, to feel pain. But now they're finding out that the lower brain structures, uh, which develop yeah. much earlier, may be the the substance of the brain that is tied to feeling pain. Has that been further proven since the time that he first came out with that initial study? Well, the, the study done in the Journal of Medical Ethics is more recent based on more recent data. And it's really why the advocates for legal abortion till uh, 24 weeks and beyond uh, dwell on this concept of conscious awareness. Uh, there you're getting into subjective measurements. To me, that makes it less than scientific. But even in situations where we are not certain of the conscious awareness of a being, um, we, we make provisions to protect them from cruelty. In fact, just in the last 24 hours or so, a woman has been uh, indicted with a felony charge for drowning a puppy in the ocean off Georgia. Mm. Um, who knows whether and what kind of pain that puppy experienced, but we know enough based on the science that the mechanism is there. That's what's been found with the later babies, that the new, the 15-week child now, that the neurotransmitters are in place, the uh, cortical structures are not necessary in certain older uh, born human being situations for them to appreciate pain. But look, at the bottom line is, if we're going to err on the wrong side of this, and I don't think we are erring, but we err on the side that the baby does feel pain, that there is a human being present, and you wouldn't bury a child if you didn't know, know it was deceased. Right. The benefit of the doubt goes to the human being. Yes, of course. Now, something else in this brief filed by the abortion industry in the Dobbs case refers to an overwhelming global trend toward liberalization of abortion access. And that flies in the face, Chuck, of what you and I recently discussed, this Europe comparison study that CLI put out showing 47 out of the 50 European nations actually do limit elective abortion prior to 15 weeks. So who, to whom are they referring when they're talking about this overwhelming overwhelming global trend toward liberalized abortion access. Well, Janet, I think they're referring to their international advocacy for legal abortion everywhere. Uh, we did have a decision in the Mexican uh, Supreme Court 
Uh, the way Mexico is structured it doesn't immediately affect the other provinces in Mexico, most of which are pro-life. But the decision held that uh, abortion violate, uh, excuse me, the, the uh, limits on abortion violated the Mexican Constitution. I think it goes to show that the judicial branch is somewhere besides the United States, are tempted to take over this issue hmm. and deprive the, the people from what they would prefer as public policy. But no, is there an international trend? No. The United States remains one of a handful of countries, seven, maybe eight if you count Mexico, um, that that allow legal abortion until term. So we're, we're the radicals. Yeah. And there's no question about it on an international scale. Yeah, you're right about that. Some Something else that they mention in the brief is they claim abortion doesn't harm a, women, a woman's mental health. I mean, that flies in the face of a lot of these post-abortive women who have gone public and spoken at pro-life events and testified to the fact that they had lifelong difficulty with the guilt and the shame and some of the physical after effects of abortion. I mean, this is just outrageous to say it doesn't harm women. Well, absolutely. And they, of course, have their stance at the American College of OBGYNs on this. But the American Psychological Association report on mental health and abortion takes account of the fact that it is a common experience for women to experience anxiety, depression, uh, depression and anxiety, anxiety related behaviors. And uh, state legislatures can take those things into account. They should. Uh, women should be screened. Tools can be developed to identify women who are likely to have more difficulty. So uh, it flies in the face of good practice. It also flies in the face of experience. Uh, organizations that deal with women struggling after abortion or a miscarriage, for example, are finding a sharp increase in the number of women they're seeing and how quickly they see them after the abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's partly a result of chemical abortion. So uh, this is the wrong time, the worst time to dismiss those concerns. Of course. It, it makes me wonder that the fact that they include some of this flawed analysis and outdated science, what do you think that says about their overall argument against this case and the Mississippi law in particular? Well, I think it, it would say the same thing it would about us if we filed briefs with the court uh, that said the unborn child, for example, is viable at 16 or 17 weeks, you know, will be there within a year or two. Uh, you can't make unfounded assertions. I think what we're seeing here is this, they have counted on the Supreme Court for half a century to automatically agree with them as authorities on these subject matters. But it's a big world. You know, the British Medical Journal published something to the contrary. Uh, we noticed it over here. It's in our arguments. And they pretend it doesn't exist. As I say, that's an unfair playing field. Um, I'm just glad that there are now more people holding authoritative voices accountable, if you will. For sure. So are there more amicus briefs to come in this case? What will be happening between now and December 1st in terms of people getting behind either side of this case? Well, it's already a record number of legal briefs. On the pro-life side, there were, I believe, about 80 legal briefs filed. Uh, so far, my understanding is the opposition, if you will, or opponents of the Mississippi law have filed 39. <laughs> I think they have a little bit more time, but uh, there's a deadline on those briefs. Uh, Charlotte Lozier will continue to monitor what the other side is saying and, uh, and attempt to take account of the arguments. But the arguments about fetal pain are pretty poor on their side, and one of their own people agrees with us. So we'll keep it up. 
Well, fantastic. And I know you also have this 15 Facts at 15 Weeks report highlighting the incredible science on the development of babies in the womb at 15 weeks gestation. It's very hard, Chuck, when you read through all of these facts about babies at 15 weeks in the womb to not say this is a human being whose life ought to be protected. Well, totally. And, you know, it's not just science. There were things I learned reading through these facts that were assembled by Dr. Katerina Firth. Uh, the one I love the most is that right-handedness and left-handedness are pretty much established and observable at 15 weeks. Mm. But we also see in the case of twins that one twin moving toward the other, they seem to have an awareness and their hand gestures slow down. Isn't that incredible? Very gently around their, their twin. So, so neat. look, there's beauty and splendor here that we've lost. That's the core of the issue. It sure is. Chuck Donovan, thank you so much, Chuck. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Not long ago, the Parents Television and Media Council released a research report called Dollars and Cents, a parent's guide to streaming media, urging streaming services in America to consider stronger controls for on-demand content. Now, this recommendation makes even more sense given that Britain is considering tighter standards to match those of the British broadcasting industry. It's important at a time when the pandemic has more kids streaming online and are continuing to do so. So we're going to hear more about it now from Tim Winter, who is president of the Parents Television and Media Council. Tim, welcome back. So good to talk to you. Good day to you and your listeners. It is a pleasure to be back on the horn with you. <laughs> well, good. According to Reuters, this British culture secretary now wants to add rules to on-demand and OTT streaming services, places like Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc. What do you think about this? Well, we are big fans of any ways that are humanly possible to protect children from the graphic sex, violence, and profanity that just seems so pervasive in our entertainment media culture today. There are two ways to do that. When you have a streaming media platform, there are two ways to do it. Number one, you don't put any graphic sex, violence, or profanity onto your platform. You don't put that programming on your air. The second thing is to make sure that there are parental protections in place, controls, good rating systems, good good, uh, uh, mechanisms that can prevent a child from having access to something explicit. Now, with the, the British government seems to be all about trying to get uh, these controls more robust. We agree. Right now in America, you have Amazon has their own um, platform, Hulu, uh, Netflix, of course, and they use a combination of different rating systems. Sometimes they use a, the motion picture system. Sometimes they use a TV rating system. There's no standard, hmm. and there are no standards in place for protective devices in terms of the parental control, setting age restrictions, and so forth. We should have a uniform best practices uh, system in place 
And that's kind of what the British government is suggesting. We wholeheartedly agree. Well, that's great. Now, this is odd because those things that you just mentioned raise a lot of eyebrows, it would seem. No uniform parental controls. Doesn't that seem like something uh, a body like the FCC ought to be controlling or equivalent? Why in the world aren't there uniform parental controls? That seems like something that would be very common sense. It is very common sense. And you think about how many things across our lives that uh, are standard. You can you can unplug something and plug something back in and it fits perfectly. What we don't have is uh, standards, similar standards in place for parental controls on, um, on entertainment media devices. And the FCC has some input, but they don't actually have regulatory oversight. There is no uh, formal regulatory oversight um, by the government that says, here's how you have to have the gating measures. It's up to private industry. And we would think that private industry should be responding to the needs of the marketplace. And they are doing just they're doing so begrudgingly. That's unfortunate. Well, what about this Child Safe Viewing Act? I mean, there have been some attempts, I know, at different forms of legislation to try to control what kids are allowed to see. I know streaming is a different animal than TV, but where do things stand legislatively on dealing with issues like this? The Child Safe Viewing Act was passed, gosh, it was over a decade ago. And the idea was to give parents greater control over the media that their children can consume, especially in today's 21st century media environment. And the landscape is so different than it was, you know, decades ago when you had to turn on a television set. Right. So, so Congress has basically been uh, quiet on this. They told the FCC to do something. The FCC kind of did something and then stopped doing anything. <sighs> it's typical government where, where it's going to require it's going to require the bully pulpit to really get things moving again. Um, one good thing, you, you mentioned our dollars and cents research report. We were very uh, vocal in our criticism of Walt Disney, which, is, which owns the Hulu streaming platform. Hulu had one of the worst parental control systems in place. Hmm. Matter of fact, it was almost non-existent. And just in the last few days, Disney quietly introduced improvements to the parental controls on Hulu. You'd think that they would be out there heralding it, but I, I think they're afraid to do so because they will be seen as having been moved by by little old us. <laughs> Can't have that, right? Well, that's good. I mean, that's a positive thing. How would you evaluate, Tim, when you look at some of these streaming services mentioned in your report, how are they doing? How do they compare with one another? It's, it's kind of all over the place. And this is, again, why we're asking for some sort of industry, best standards, best practices standards. Um, you have Netflix, which, as we've talked about over the years, Janet, <laughs> Uh, Netflix has the most toxic content that's available that could harm children. Uh, And yet, ironically, or perhaps coincidentally, or perhaps good for them, they actually have the better controls, parental controls uh, in place. So they have the most toxic content, but they do have stronger parental controls. Hmm. Uh, Disney's own Hulu um, has, uh, you know, kind of a mix of adult stuff and younger stuff, edgier content. And they're finally now getting the, the parental controls in place. Um, Disney Plus has, uh, you know, mostly family-friendly content. And I would say their, their uh, parental controls are in the mid-range. Hmm. Um, so you have, you know, each, each system has its own various, you know, system of trying to uh, help parents be better parents. But you'd think that, that uh, in, here in the, today, the ability to have, you know, coming together and having really strong unanimous uh, approval that we need to help parents protect their kids 
why aren't they doing so? Uh, we're trying as best as we can with a bayonet tip to, to point it at their, at, their, at their rear end and say, you know what, get in line and let's, let's have uh, a strong thing that parents can understand. Let them understand one system because right now they they can't learn each and every different system. It's not, it's unfair to parents. It is. Let's uh, let's have the industry do a better job. Yeah, I agree with you totally. Now you have another report. I want to touch on this before we run out of time, Tim. Talking about this Netflix, since you mentioned Netflix, there's a program called Big Mouth. You say this particular show is grooming children for sexual abuse. This is why parental controls matter. Tell us about this. I it's it is. I've been. I spent the last four decades working in and around Hollywood. This big mouth television program on Netflix, it's a cartoon and it features 12 and 13 year old children characters going through puberty. It basically has them engaged in such graphic explicit stuff. I can't even say it here because I would offend your listeners. It is so vile and it's, it basically invites predators. It, it, it whets their appetites, shows naked children, Naked children, 12 and 13 year old, full frontal nudity in animation and in extremely explicit situations. This isn't just an innocent, you know, changing a baby's diaper type thing. This is this is sexually explicit in a sexual context and it features children. And and if if you could envision what kind of a show would allow parents to prey on children and and have children desensitized to being uh, um, preyed upon. This is this is what you would this is what you would create. It's that heinous. It's the most dangerous thing I have ever seen in my four decades working in this industry. That's saying something. Is there now a move on to try to get this show canceled? I mean, what kind of move is afoot right now to try to, you know, call it out? I mean, they went after cuties and people got all riled up about cuties, rightly so. But this sounds worse. This makes cuties look like Sesame Street. Ugh. Wow, that's that's how bad it is. Uh, but but here's the good news: uh, we are in contact, direct contact, with the Department of Justice and the FBI. We are providing with them them the evidence of the recordings and the uh, the transcripts of the show. We want law enforcement to step up. We are also going to be working in the coming year on shareholder resolutions. I know you feature business uh, issues, you know, constantly in your in your programming. Yeah. Um, let's have corporate, a corporation, publicly traded corporation like Netflix, have a shareholder vote saying, you know what, we're not going to sexually exploit children for money. How, you know, who would vote no? Who would vote no on that? Except <laughs> yeah. for maybe the creators of, of this show. Yeah. So we want to have we want to have law enforcement involved. We want to have um, the corporate shareholders involved, pushing back on their executives, and we want to make sure that parents and grandparents understand just how how horrible the show is because you see a cartoon featuring children, you might not realize just how dangerous it is. Well, that's right. And that's why we really need to be aware and alert to what's going on out there. And we are so grateful for your work, Tim, over at the Parents Television and Media Council. ParentsTV.org is their website, and you can get great information on your entertainment options and especially get ideas on how to protect your kids from bad content. Tim, thanks as always. Terrific work. And thank you for being with us again. Thank you, Janet. Blessings to you. You too. Take care. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today.
From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will, I will. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters this Friday. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. This is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Nearly one in four pregnancies in America will end in abortion. The Ministry of Preborn provides free ultrasounds for abortion-minded women nationwide. When a mother sees her baby on an ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. Here's the story of a mom who went to one of Preborn centers and met the baby she had planned to abort. They took me to the back and they introduced me to my child for the first time through an ultrasound. I was able to see this life growing inside of me, hear the heartbeat, and nothing else mattered at that point. I was a mother to be. Your gift of $140 will cover the cost of five ultrasounds. All donations are tax deductible. You can help save a baby's life by donating to Preborn. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus Music. Jesus Music found its way in my hometown and it changed my life. I saw contemporary Christian music born right before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. Featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music, including Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack, and Kirk Franklin. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.com movie. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Well, we are all about the truth. As Christians, we're about the truth. Theologically, we're about the truth in everything, in all things, because that's who we are to be. We know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and therefore we can't accept anything less than the truth. And these days, the truth is falling on hard times, which is why I've always appreciated people who are willing to do great investigative journalism. We have talked quite a bit, as you know, over the last year and a half about the pandemic. How can you not? I try not to drown you in pandemic news only because we can only take so much. But I do try to weigh in here and there because I do think it's an ongoing, continuing issue, huge issue for this country. We, we almost can't wrap our brains around the significance of this last block of time of the last year and a half from the time of lockdowns to the time of totalitarianism that we're entering. So Project Veritas has now come out with a story interviewing another whistleblower. This one works for the U.S. Health and Human Services. This is a nurse by the name of Jody O'Malley. She works as a registered nurse at the Indian Medical Center in Phoenix. And they intersperse, as they usually do, some undercover videos. What the video shows as you're going through the course of this interview is Jody O'Malley interacting with another doctor with whom she works at this medical center, Dr. Maria Gonzalez, who's an ER doctor there at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And they're talking about the fact that you're seeing all kinds of reactions from people who have been vaccinated for COVID-19. And yet there's just not any reporting being done on some of these reactions to the vaccine. So James O'Keefe from Project Veritas first asks Jody, who is this person, Maria Gonzalez, who says that the vaccine is essentially full of baloney? This has got one. 
Dr. Gonzalez is one of our emergency room doctors at Phoenix Indian Medical Center. And she's a federal employee? Correct. Now you got this guy in room four who got his second dose of vaccine um, on Tuesday, has been short of breath. He's got myocarditis. Yes. I, and now, let's see. Probably myocarditis due to the vaccine. Right. But now they're not going to blame the vaccine. Well, and you know what? But he has an obligation to report that, doesn't he? They are not reporting. Right. Because they want to shove it under the, yeah. under the, 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 the mat. What patient was she referring to? She was uh, referring to that patient, that 30-something-year-old patient that had congestive heart congestive failure. Congestive heart failure. And in that particular patient's case, it was not reported. No. The problem in here, they are not doing the studies. People that had it, you know, right. and the people that have been uh, uh, vaccinated, they're not doing any um, antibody testing. It's super fishy. It's not that it hasn't been done, it hasn't been published. <laughs> it hasn't probably uh, been done because the, the government doesn't want to show that the darn vaccine is full of... It's not doing what it, its purpose was. Well, that's kind of scary, isn't it, coming from medical professionals. Then James O'Keefe confirms that Jody is a federal employee looking at her badges. She's a master's prepared RN. Here it goes. Cut to. You're Jody O'Malley with the Department of Health and Human Services. This is the United States government identification. I'm looking at the CDC website. It says that you're required to report adverse events following vaccinations. One of those would be uh, congestive heart failure. That's a huge one. Were there other instances that they they didn't report? Oh, I've seen dozens of people come in with an adverse reaction. Yeah, it's really sad. She had just come back from surgery, from leave. So what are we looking at here? You're looking at me transferring her to a, a higher level of care that could handle her condition. And this is a, col a colleague at your hospital who got sick. She didn't want to take it because of her religious beliefs, and she was coerced into taking it. Why are you choosing to blow the whistle? It's not what a lot of people would do. They're scared, they're afraid. Are you afraid? I wouldn't necessarily say I'm afraid because my faith lies in God and not man. This is evil at the, the highest level. You have the FDA, you have the CDC, that are both supposed to be protecting us. Are you afraid they're gonna retaliate against you? Yeah, I'm a federal employee. What other federal employees do you see coming out? But you put your faith in God. Amen. So dozens of people have come into her medical center with adverse reactions to the COVID-19 vaccines and these incidents have not been reported. That's the story. So how many more hospitals throughout the United States are doing the same thing. Well, Jody goes on to describe seeing a 15-year-old teenage boy with a history of asthma come in with blood clots and talks to another nurse later in the clip about how people are not being treated and the VAERS reports aren't being done. This is cut three. So I was um, just covering a nurse. Um, he's in here with bilateral PEs, but he's fine. And I'm like, okay. So he wasn't on oxygen or anything like that. And I said, was he um, vaccinated? And then she's like, I don't know. So then I looked in the chart and he was. He had the Pfizer vaccine or at the end of July and he was due for a second dose. So this is essentially two to three weeks later. Most likely cause of hypoxia, unusual PE at this age. 
unclear etiology. They don't know why he got it. So how do we know that the blood clots, or how do you know that the blood clots are a result of the COVID vaccine? Because this is a 15-year-old, normal weight, healthy child. No reason for him to have a blood clot. It's a shame they're not treating people. I know that they're supposed to, like they should. And I think they want people to do that. And how many have you seen that have gotten vaccinated here? That have sick and yeah. side effects? A lot. A lot. Have you seen it too? Yeah. Yes. So and I'm like, who's, who's writing the virus report? Nobody, because it takes over a half an hour to write the Why? The CDC website, it says that you're required to report adverse events following vaccinations. Is there a policy at the hospital for reporting these complications? No. There has never been any directive sent out on reporting. That's just unbelievable, isn't it? People have the right to have access to all of the information that they would need to decide whether or not to have the COVID-19 vaccine. And yet there are vaccine mandates coming down from President Biden. If you're a federal worker, if you're a contractor, if you're a company with 100 employees or more. And schools now demanding it. Now, talk of airlines, whether or not they should let people fly who aren't vaccinated. And yet this is going on at a government, a federal government run hospital. And they're not reporting these adverse effects. You ought to be concerned about this. Everybody ought to be concerned about this, regardless of which side you fall on, pro, anti-vaccine or neutral, so or somewhere in the middle. Then she discusses what prompted her to come forward. And this was her coworker who took that vaccine, who was coerced, she said, into taking the vaccine and then died. This is cut four. What prompted me to do this was when I was house supervisor one night and one of my coworkers had taken the vaccine and she didn't want to. She had went throughout this entire pandemic working in the intensive care unit. It pretty much was a COVID unit. <sighs> she didn't want to take it. She didn't want to take it because of her religious beliefs. And she was coerced into taking it. And it's like, nobody, Nobody should have to decide between their livelihood, being a part of the team in the hospital, or take the vaccine. Now, now, now we're just making people take it, and then there's reactions to it, and then you have a medication that has been shown effective and surely has no adverse reactions for trying it. It, um... Dr. Bakwa talked to you about prescribing ivermectin for at a lot of this facility. And so physicians can't um, prescribe off-label use medication here? Not for COVID. They did it with hydroxychloroquine and they it was really bad. And so they are not allowing it right now. I am, I am stuck. I am told you are absolutely not to use it under any circumstances whatsoever for somebody with COVID unless you don't want to have a job. Oh, that's scary. Again, I'm not trying to manipulate you here by playing clips of a nurse crying because I think that we ought to be very sober and very rational about taking in all the information that we're getting about this vaccine issue and the mandate issue and the reporting and the lack of support for treatment in hospitals. You can't get ivermectin or you'll lose your job. Does that sound like a science decision to you or does it sound political? This is what I'm getting at. 
The reason that you see big tech cracking down on what they like to label misinformation is because there is all kinds of information. It's seeming more and more we're learning about this that just doesn't fit their scheme of things. And that should trouble everybody. We, the American people, deserve to know the truth about all of this. And I thank the Lord for people who are brave like this nurse coming forward and giving the side of the story that, you know, the local news and the national news won't report on. So thank you, Jody. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you in part by Courageous Legacy, the new film from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters this Friday.